There's a line in a movie that uh, has always stuck in my head, and it's a line that uh, some of you will recognize by the movie. It's entitled, uh, What We Have Here is a Failure to Communicate. What we have here is a failure to communicate. It's a warden who's trying to communicate to a, 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 a mate in prison who continues to try to escape and never seems to succeed, and he's always recaptured. And the warden says to him, What we have here is a failure to communicate. Have you ever been in a circumstance or situation where there's a failure to communicate? Or maybe God has said to you sometimes, what we have here is a failure to communicate. A failure to communicate. There's a farmer who was out in the farm and he was farming. He's probably related to Brother Denny and he was out underneath a tree during lunch, enjoying his sack lunch. And He's been struggling for quite some time with what he called a calling. It was a call that he felt in his soul, a calling to preach the gospel, to leave the fields of produce and go out into the fields of soul and to proclaim and to declare the gospel of Jesus. And he was somewhat uncertain because he'd been farming most of his life, but he was feeling that call, that calling. He felt it was from God. And while he was under this tree on this afternoon, he looked up in the sky and he saw two clouds. One looked like a P and the other looked like a C. And he surmised as he evaluated that, he said, God must be communicating to him, preach Christ. And so he concluded, I'm supposed to preach Christ. I'm supposed to leave the farm and, and go out and preach Christ. And so he left the farm and he went out and he began to preach Christ. The only problem is he was horrible at it. I mean, terrible at it. And uh, every time he would get up to preach, he would always start out with this introduction about how God had called him PC to preach Christ. Christ. At the conclusion of one of his terrible messages, the standing in the back of the door, a lady was shaking his hand on the way out, and she said, uh, Sir, I, I beg to differ with you about your interpretation of what you understood God saying into your life. Rather than PC meaning preach Christ, maybe God was trying to tell you to plant corn instead. A failure to communicate. In the passage we're studying today, there is a failure to communicate. God has tried to communicate with Sodom and Gomorrah several times and on several occasions. There was an invading army that came and captured them and took away all of their, their possessions and, and held them captive. And God led Abraham to go north and to conquer that army and to liberate the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and to restore back into them their treasures, their possessions, and return to them their city. They witnessed Abraham giving one-tenth of everything that he, he had captured to God, to Melchizedek, to the high priest. He, he heard of the testimony of Abraham in which God gave, God, Abraham gave God the credit for the power and the resources to liberate Sodom and Gomorrah. They heard that testimony, and that alone should have communicated to them that they should follow Yahweh. They should call Jehovah their God, but they did not listen. There was a failure to communicate. Lot, when he had been living in Sodom and had been visited by the two angels, 
had tried to convince him to leave town, and he was reluctant to do so, and they drug him out of town and planted him outside of the city and told him to go to the hill country, and he argued with them, and he pled, let me go to Zor instead, and they allowed him to go, and in spite of God saving him, there was a failure to communicate. We're going to learn in our story today because he eventually went to the hill country and escaped for his, for, from his from his. Of his, his persecutors from the city of Zor. And God was having a hard time communicating with Lot. And he was a, having a hard time hearing God, understanding God, and following God. Lot's wife, there was a failure to communicate. We're going to learn today how she was told and instructed by her husband not to turn back and to look back into the city that God was judging and punishing for their sin, and yet she did. And the reason she did is because I'm convinced there was a failure to understand exactly the ramifications or the consequences for disobeying God. I would say there was a failure to communicate, and because of that, she dies in our study today. Two daughters of Lot and his wife Also, there was a failure to communicate because they must have heard the story of God sending the two angels to redeem and to rescue Lot and his family. They must have understood the importance of escaping the city, and they must have understood the importance of understanding the justice and the judgments of God and how important it was to obey and to follow God. And yet, in their decision to bear children, they never once consulted the will or the word of God and took justice into their own hands, matters into their own hands, and they defied and disobeyed God. And I would say the end result of their lives, there was a failure to communicate. They did not understand nor they heed to or listen to what God wanted to communicate into their lives. And so we have this study today as we conclude Genesis chapter 19, the story of Lot and his family. Five choices regarding divine justice. Why do I call it divine justice? I was in a conversation earlier this week with some people that, that, uh, that we love and we like, and, and uh, they were discussing with me in regard to the judgment of God, and they were having a hard time wrapping their minds and their understanding around this whole concept of the wrath of God. And Sodom and Gomorrah came up, and I was wondering if they had been listening to some of the messages that we've been studying the last several weeks, and they were grappling with this whole concept, if God is loving, if God is merciful, if God is kind, if God is, is, is gracious, is, if God is merciful, if God is forgiving, then how can he also be a God of wrath or a God of judgment? And I was asked that question, and I said, well, rather than use the word wrath, I want to redefine that word and call it justice instead. And one of the persons on the other side of the table said, I like that word better than wrath. And I concluded in my remark that God is a God of justice rather than thinking God of a God of wrath. It's okay to think of him as a God of wrath, and and that I understand, but as we're dealing with the world, let's talk about a God of justice, because if he is a God of justice, he's also a God of love. For a loving God has to be a just God. A caring God has to be a just God. A forgiving God has to be a just God. And when a wrong is committed, a sin is committed, God is loving, he does forgive, he is merciful, he is gracious, but he's also just. And that he must punish sin. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, Now the wage of that sin is death. God is a just God. 
In order for his character and his nature to be balanced, he is loving, but he is just. And in his justice, he is a fair God. He alone rules rightly because he alone is perfect without any prejudice and without any bias, has the ability to look past the pretense, to look past the camouflage, look past the games that we play and the words that we say and the things we project. And he sees the heart of the individual and he knows the true condition of our souls. And he alone who sees that and is impartial in his judgment always judges rightly and fairly, but he is a just God. And make no mistake, he is a God of love, but he is a God of justice. And one day he will come and he will sit on a throne and he will be the judge, the jury, and the executioner of that justice. And we will all stand before God and give an account of our lives. And so as we study this study, there are five choices regarding the divine justice of God. The first choice that I see in this text is the choice that I have in that I can live foolishly. I can choose to live foolishly when it comes to thinking about and dealing with the justice of God. I can live foolishly. Notice the text, verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, Sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Notice this divine justice is sudden. Lot is on his way to seek refuge in the city of Zor that God has allowed him to to, to run to and to hide from and to get away from the judgment that is coming. And as soon as he gets there, all of a sudden, the justice of God is poured out upon Sodom and Gomorrah and the other two cities. It is a sudden justice. Imagine, if you will, these people that are living in this city who are, are, are engaging in, in day-to-day activity. It's, it's in the middle of the day. Some are heading to work. Some are coming home from work. Some are going to the grocery store. Some are going to soccer games. Some are going to weddings. There's this hub of activity in this, in this city and things are going on and people are acting and living and, and choosing as if there is no tomorrow, as if they have forever to make a decision and all of a sudden out of the middle of nowhere, suddenly the judgment of God comes and his justice prevails. It disrupts their life and in fact it brings the downfall and the destruction of all that they know in life. It's sudden. But notice not only is it sudden, but it's strategic because you see this, this justice, this judgment hits four specific cities and a certain valley. It is a strategic justice in which God has already told us in several other passages that the reason for this justice, the reason for this judgment is because of their sins against humanity and their sins against God. It is a, a strategic, pinpoint, accurate place of justice, but it's supernatural as well in the fact that God rains down this judgment from heavens, from the sky. It rains down on them, brimstone and fire. And there's a lot of controversy and conflict over, over how this happens and all of this. And a lot of people and scholars try to explain because they live in, a, in, a, in an area where there are gases and other things underneath the earth and how it could all of a sudden do this. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that this is a supernatural act of God in which God is the one who inflicts the justice. No one, no one has the right to inflict justice other than God. 
And God is inflicting this justice, and he rains down hell from heaven upon these people, and he completely obliterates, he destroys, he annihilates. It is a substantial destruction. Every city is destroyed, every citizen is killed, and every part of the countryside is disrupted, it is annihilated, it is placed in ashes, and it is smoldering with smoke. It is gone. It's devastated. It is over. And these people live their lives foolishly as if the judgment of God and the justice of God was inconsequential, non-relevant to their lives. And what a disastrous way to live one's life. I think what we've heard about here recently that's gone on in Paris is a shock to most of us. But how these terrorists attract unsuspectingly in times in which people are unaware of their own fatality and their own mortality and their own vulnerability and they attack specifically targeting for a purpose to shock us. And I'm convinced that when the justice and the judgment of God comes, it will be that shocking. For people will be completely unaware of what is to come. Now, true, these people who inflicted this pain on Paris are not God's instruments. They're anything but God's instruments. But it is God who's going to inflict this sudden, catastrophic, strategic, supernatural, substantial justice on mankind. And it's coming. And there are those who live foolishly as if it's not a reality. But it doesn't matter what you and I think or feel or believe, does it? Does it? Because it's real. And it's going to happen, regardless of how foolishly people decide to live, to live or not, or how, how prepared people are or not. It is going to happen, and if we are not careful, we too can be guilty of living foolishly as if, ah, I've heard about it, I know it's coming, and I've been told to be ready in any moment, but you know what, I, I'm, I'm not that concerned about it. I've got time. And it's going to catch people unprepared. And they're going to be living foolishly. And they're going to find themselves standing for the judge, giving an account of their lives. And where they spend eternity is dependent upon how they have prepared for that moment. I can choose to live foolishly. Secondly, I can only choose to live foolishly, but I can lament secretly. I can lament secretly. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. I, I, I don't know about you, but I've always wondered, why isn't she named? Does she not have a name? <laughs> I wonder about her name. And some have speculated that the reason why Moses didn't name her is more than likely that she's probably a Sodomite woman. Because we never hear of Lot when he left with Abraham toward the promised land to, to, to have a wife. And so more than likely, some speculate that when he got to Sodom to camp out there, to live there, to make that his home, he sought out a wife and she was a Sodomite woman. And that's why her name isn't there. That's a speculation that's not... You know, completely, but it's plausible. But it simply says, but Lot's wife. And as I looked at that, I saw, you know, there's always an exception to the rule in a, in a family, isn't there, or in a group of people. The exception to the rule. And 
It says here, but Lot's wife. You see, Lot, his wife, and his two daughters were headed toward Zor to safety, to, to, to get away from the, 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 the judgment and the wrath or the justice of God being poured out upon that city. They were saved by the angels and everything they were away. They were making their way as a family, but there was one among them. There was the one exception, and that one exception was Lot's wife. Lot's wife is that one exception. And Lot's wife is that one exception. It describes very graphically how they are traveling. Lot's wife is traveling behind Lot. And I don't know if that strikes you as interesting or not, but why would she be traveling behind Lot? He's the leader. And she's traveling behind Lot. But, but maybe she's traveling behind Lot because she hears what's going on in the valley below. And her heart is beating... And her mind is spinning, and she's reflecting upon the life that she has left or is leaving, all of the luxuries and all of the, 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 the in, you know, little things that, that, that are in her home and all of the life that she had. And she's looking for an opportunity to look back so that Lot does not detect her looking back. She wants to look back undetected, unnoticed by Lot, and she's looking for that opportunity. And so it, it stems to reason then that she's following behind Lot so that she can kind of look quickly without him noticing what she's doing. And so she's looking for that opportunity. And I can imagine in my mind as she is following Lot, she's watching him because he's constantly looking back to make sure they're there to look for that opportune right moment so that she can look back and look at the city that she's leaving behind. So she's falling behind him, waiting for the opportune time so that she can look undetected by her husband looking back. She thinks she's going to look back and get away with it because Lot is not going to see her, but she fails to understand that it's not Lot she should be worried about, it's God. And Lot's not looking, and she seizes her opportunity, and notice the Bible simply says, she looked back. That's all it says. She looked back. Why did she look back? Because there was a longing in her heart, a desire that was there, a passion for what she was leave, leaving and losing, and, 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 and it was there. And she lamented secretly in her heart this, this having to follow her husband and leaving all of that life behind. And yet willingly, physically, she was doing it, but mentally, Emotionally and spiritually, she had not left the old life. And she was following her husband. And she looked back, lusting and longing for the life that she once knew. All of his luxuries and all his worldliness. And she longed and lingered and lamented over that. And instantaneously, instantaneously, the moment, the very second, the millisecond she looked back. She didn't, I don't think even had time to create a thought. The moment she looked back, she became a pillar of salt. This is not allegorical writing, meaning this is not imaginary. It's not spiritual. It's not some hardness in her heart. She literally became a pillar of salt. 
I mean, if, if, we, if we don't have a problem with God forming man out of dust and forming a woman out of man, the God of creation who can make something out of nothing, and, and then after we die, turn our bodies physically back to dust, why can we not believe that God can turn a woman who disobeys him into a pillar of salt? And God turned her instantaneously into a pillar of salt. Why? Because in her heart of hearts, she lamented secretly the world that she was leaving behind. And I'm convinced there are many today. And Jesus talked about those even in his day. You can't take your hand to the plow and keep looking back while you're following the Lord. Because this world is not our home. And with all his lust and its it's, 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 it's lure and all of its call out to us and all that it offers. We are to turn our back on the world and to put our sights on following the Lord and the journey and the destiny for which we have been called to live. Well, we can choose to live foolishly, we can choose to lament secretly, or we can choose to look expectantly. This is Abraham. He looked expectantly upon the Lord, the faithfulness of God. Had a little bit of trouble with this, and not a lot of people like to comment on what's going on here. There's a lot of confusion in regard to this text, and some of you go out and try to study what we study on Sunday morning, and I challenge you to do that. So a little bit of difficulty here, but I did come to a conclusion after a lot of searching and, and uh, word processing here about what I believe is happening here. Abraham is looking expectantly to find the faithfulness of God. Not faithfulness toward his prayer, but faithfulness toward himself. Take a look at the text. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Notice his arrival. He arrives at the place where he had earlier stood with the Lord. We know what happened earlier in Genesis chapter 18 where he had entertained the Lord at a meal and then the three got up to walk and he journeyed with them further than he should have journeyed with them and he traveled further. He didn't want to let go of, of the presence of the Lord. I mean, would you be willing to do that? You're, you knew that you were in the presence of the Lord and you were making a, a journey with him and, and you wanted to stay with him as long as you could. And Abraham, because he was a friend of God, wanted to commune with God as long as he could. And they finally got to the top of the mountain where the two angels then proceeded to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah and he stood on that hill with the Lord and he pleaded, remember? He pleaded for the souls of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other three cities. He begged God to give them more time. And it was at that point, at that place, at that spot on this morning, less than 24 hours later, he finds himself standing. He gets up early in the morning and he goes out and he stands in that very spot where he and the Lord had had an encounter. He arrives at the spot that he intended to arrive. And then notice the attention that he gives to looking below in verse 28. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. What is his concern? When he arrives, he's concerned about looking down into the valley and assessing more than likely the noises that he heard the night before. He had been in that very spot and he remembers the beautiful luster of the of the of the plains and the, the, the countryside. We were in Montana this week. Man, that is my new favorite state to ever visit. I used to love Colorado, El Dorado, Colorado. I don't know, anyway. Have you ever been to Montana? Dadgum. 
the beautiful hills. And we're helping plant a church in, uh, in, Cala, in Montana, in uh, Whitefish, Montana, just 30 miles south of the, of the Canadian border. And maybe this summer some of you will be able to go with us there. We only have places for six, so you better be the first to sign up. No, I'm just kidding, but uh, uh, what a great, beautiful, beautiful place. And as I thought about this study, I thought about the beauty that he once stood as, as possibly he and Lot. Remember when they first stood there and Lot chose that valley because of the, the luster and the beauty and, and all that was there? And now he's standing there and he's looking down below. And, but his concern, I think, is for the people who are there. Because in his prayer, his concern was for the people. And he gets up early in the morning to assess the situation. And he stands in that very spot where he had pled and pleaded for their souls. And he looks down and his concern is for the people. And then notice his assessment. And as he looks down, behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of the furnace. The the, the towns are completely obliterated. They're gone. The cities are desolate. They've been destroyed, no longer to be revitalized. The citizens are dead. The countryside is burned up. And the only thing left are ashes and cinders and smoke going up, up in the sky. And as he's standing there assessing, notice now the awareness of Abraham. Verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley. Look at that beautiful statement. God remembered Abraham. God remembered Abraham. Abraham had a good night's sleep that night. Abraham didn't lose anything. He lost nothing. Absolutely nothing. And now he's standing on that spot and he's looking down below and he's seeing the destruction and the desolation and the smoke. And he suddenly, I think, is engulfed. He is enveloped with the grace of God, the faithfulness of God, the graciousness, the kindness, and the mercy of God upon his life because he realizes and recognizes that were it not for the grace the grace of God, he too would be, like them, destroyed. But because of a covenant relationship in which God plucked him out of a group of people and set him on a place in which he infused in Abraham his righteousness, he would not have a righteousness of his his own because he is saved by grace through faith. And it was his faith that put in him the righteousness that was required to escape the judgment of God. He slept that night. He did not suffer that night. He was saved that night. Why? Not because of his own righteousness or his own goodness, but because of the righteousness of goodness of the one who saved him. And I think for, for just a moment, he stood there and he was in awe about how gracious, how merciful, and how kind God was to him. For God having remembered him, For it were not for God's grace, he too would have died. So we can choose then to live foolishly, to lament secretly, or to look expectantly, or we can choose to lead repentantly. To lead repentantly. Lot is in the lead of his family. Let's notice how he leads his family repentantly. A, A perpetual repentant 
attitude in the heart of Lot. He, he, he's, one, he, he's a guy kind of like me, and I, maybe you can relate to him too. He's one who's always making mistakes and then repenting of those mistakes and correcting those mistakes and getting back into where he needs to be. And that's what he does here. In the second part of verse 29, and, and notice, And God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. The two angels were on a mission, remember? And their mission was to, to save Lot for the coming destruction and, and from the coming judgment and from the coming justice of God upon the wickedness that these cities had committed against fellow mankind and also against God. And the mission was to save him. And the mission originally was, if you remember, was to send him to the hillside, to the countryside, to the mountains, to the wilderness, to the desert. But he argued with the angels and he pleaded his case. And we saw last week while the angel said, uh, the Lord said through the angels, okay, we'll, we'll give you permission to go to Zor. That's not really the best intent for you. That's not where I want you to go. But we'll allow you to go to Zor. Now notice verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters. He first went to Zor, and, and all of a sudden in Zor, he says, no, this is not the place I need to be. Why did he move away from Zor? It gives us the motivation there, for he was afraid to live in Zor. Wait a minute, if you remember the argument that we talked about last week, why did he want to go to Zor? He said, God, if you send me to the hills, I'll be in danger there. I'm afraid to go to the hills. I need to go to Zor. I need to go to the city. I need to go where I'm familiar with so I can be protected by people. Don't send me to the hills because I'll be in danger. And he goes to Zor, and all of a sudden he wakes up and realizes, I'm in danger in Zor. God was right. I should have listened to him all along. And he leaves the city of refuge that he asked for, a city that God had spared from his justice, and he moves to the hills. And notice it says, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. He used to live in caves with Abraham, and then he moved to the city and got used to the luxury of the city. And now he's away from Zor, and he's back into the caves where he didn't really want to go in the first place. And I say here that this is a mistake that he corrected. A mistake that he corrected. He repented. I can imagine that he and the Lord had a long discussion on the way back to the hills that day. And you've had these discussions before. Lord, you're right. I, I don't know what possessed me. I was stupider and stupid. I should have done that. You know, Forrest Gump was right. Stupid is as stupid does. I shouldn't have done that. I, I, I argued with you and begged and pleaded, and I didn't do what you asked me to do, and I thought that this would be a better place for me. And when I got there, I realized, you know, you, you knew it wouldn't be where I needed to be. You knew I'd be in danger there. That's so why you sent me to the hills, but I argued with you, and you, you let me go anyway. And then all of a sudden, boom, I got there, and you know what? I, I, I'm sorry. I repent. And I, 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 I reverse my actions. And I stop, and I turn, and I, I'm going to follow you now. And he takes his two daughters with him. Some of us, like Lot, in dealing with the incoming things that are happening in our world today, need to understand that in his justice and in his judgment, we too must repent because we are moving in directions and doing things and saying things and thinking things that are not in accordance to the will of God. And we need to understand that we are not moving into safety, we're moving into danger. And it's in the center of the will of God that we find 
the protection and the provision and the power of God. To repent. Because many of us are going places we shouldn't be going and seeing things we shouldn't be seeing and thinking things we shouldn't be thinking and listening to things we shouldn't be listening to and taking our lives in directions that are totally contradictory to the word, the will, and the ways of God. And we need to repent and come back to the Lord. Because there is a day of accountability. Judgment begins in the house of God, the Bible says. And just because we may escape condemnation doesn't mean we won't escape the justice or the accountability of our lives before the Lord. And number five, we must choose not only to live foolishly, lament secretly, look expectantly, lead repentantly. We must finally then launch out. We can launch out irrationally. To plow ahead, to go ahead outside of the will of God, to just completely ignore exactly what it is that God has asked us to do, to choose sin rather than sanctification, to choose wrong rather than righteousness, and just to plow our way through as if it doesn't really matter how we act or how we live. And we have a, a culture of Christianity today that seems to just disregard how they are living without any intent of ever being accountable to God. Notice the two daughters in verse 31. And the firstborn said to the younger, you know, there's always an advocate for sin. And sad enough, it usually starts with the oldest. You know why I say that? Because I'm the oldest. And some of you who are the second or third or fourth child can... A test of that. Some of the things you did, you did because the oldest sibling did them first. Rather than learning from their mistakes, you didn't learn. And we see here this advocate for sin. The firstborn says to the younger, to the youngest sister, Our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him and we may preserve offspring from our father. Notice the argument for sin. This is incest. And they're arguing for sin. They're in the hills, in a cave, in the mountains, far from civilization. The only man in the hill, in the cave with them, is their father. And they recognize and realize that we'll never meet a man in these hills. Didn't they have access to internet? Online dating services? Match.com or whatever? You know, there have been a lot of romance, and some of you in this church have met your, your spouse online, and I say, good for you. Where do you meet eligible battler, bachelors or eligible ladies? Because everywhere you go, they're just nowhere to be found. So you go on the internet, and you see some guy lying out, out the wazoo about how great he is, and then you marry him and realize, ain't just like the other guys, anyway. They're in the hills, and they can't find anybody. So how are we going to have any offspring? How are we going to continue our family name? And they concoct this, this, this plot. And, and, and in all fairness, Lot's not too bright, is he? And he drinks way too much. Obviously, he was not Baptist. He drinks too much wine, and he gets drunk. I'm not so sure you can get so drunk that you don't know what's going on around you. But the Bible does say that he didn't have any recollection of it. And his 
eldest daughter goes in and sleeps with her father. Incest. How do you justify that? Notice then the text. The next day it says, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay, I lay last night with my father, and let us make him drunk with wine together also. They did it together again tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The act of sin. First, the eldest, now the youngest. They argue this argument that justifies their sin. They then act upon their argument, justifying what they've done. Notice the aftermath. And both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. You think they could conceal it after that? How do you conceal a pregnancy from your father? He may not have known it in the act, but he knew it in the after effect, the aftermath. And he must have concluded, how do my daughters become pregnant except by me? Can you imagine the horror and the dishonor and the shame that Lot felt when he realized his daughters were pregnant by him? Was must have been an all-time low for him spiritually. But notice then in verse 37, notice the advancement of sin. The first born a son and called his name Moab, he and his father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami, and he is father of the Amorites to this day. The Moabites settled down in the land, uh, became neighbors of Israel, and actually became defiant Rebels constantly bickering and fighting against Abraham and against Israel. And the Amorites became nomads, wanderers, but always aligning themselves against Israel. And so here we have now two women that, that, that give birth to two boys. And those boys become the beginning of, of tribes and nations that no longer worship Jehovah or Yahweh. If you don't believe that sin is generational, you need to wake up. Because I'm convinced that the sins of the father can become the sins of the children. And the sins of the children will become the sins of their children. And the sins of their children can become the sins of their children. Unless there's a generation that decides to stop the progression or the advancement of sin. And repents and resists the lure of what I call generational sins. Never underestimate the power, fathers, of the choices you make in regard to how it impacts your children. Moms, be careful how you choose to live your life because your children are watching and the sins that you commit will lay groundwork for your children to make the same choices you're making today. Don't launch out irrationally without any regard to the consequence of sin. For it will impact not only your life, but your children's lives and your children's children's lives and so forth and so on. So, as we close, if I have five choices to make in regard to divine justice and judgment of God, which one 
will I choose? Are we going to be like Lot's wife? Who heard the command and understood the will of the Lord but thought she could get away with it and turn around and, and long and lust for the world that she was leaving behind? Unaware of the fact that God who was watching, maybe not her husband, but God who sees all, was watching and seeing how she lived and how she longed for, for what she was leaving behind. The consequence of those choices, is that you today? Is some of a, are some of us in here kind of like, like Lot? We made some poor choices and we were taking our lives in a, in a direction that's opposite and against that which God would, would have designed and desired for our lives. And we finally recognize after making a wreck or ruin of our lives, we need to repent and need to then now lead righteously and rightly and come back to the ways, to the word and the will of God. Are there some of us here like Lot's daughters who just completely are irrational about the coming and the pending justice and judgment of God and are living reckless lives, somehow arguing, defending our choice of sin and living our lives as we choose without any regard of consulting the word and the will and the ways of God? There are some and there are many today who call themselves Christians who are not regarding God at all, nor his word, nor his ways, and somehow finding ways to justify their lifestyle choices, hoping that God's going to overlook them, and he won't. Because he's loving and forgiving, but he's just and he's right. And maybe there are some of us who, like Abraham, as we look at what's coming, can say, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> because of a covenant relationship that I have with you through your son, Jesus, I have placed my faith and trust in him, and he took upon himself my sin on the cross, and he died in my place. And now because of that covenant relationship that I have through him with you, he died for my sin. Now I have a righteousness that's not of my own, for I have been saved by grace through faith. And were it not for that, I too would be judged. I too would be a recipient of your justice. But Jesus became my justifier. He took upon himself my sin, and I now sleep peacefully at night knowing that if I were to die tonight, I'd be eternally secure because of a right covenant relationship with you. Because I believe once you're saved, you're always safe. Salvation is not something you lose. Because it's not something you, you deserve, and it's not something that you do for yourself. It's a gift that's given by grace through faith. And once you have it, it's always yours. Well, there are some of us here, kind of like Sodom and Gomorrah, who are living foolishly. We're not ready. We're not ready. Judgment is coming suddenly. It's coming soon. It's coming sooner than you think. And are you ready? Living foolishly is not the best choice, but living rightly is. And I encourage you today to consider the five choices that you should make and how you should prepare for the coming justice and the judgment seat of Christ. For he is the judge, and he will one day sit on a throne as the judge and the jury and the executioner of the sentence. 
choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Sure.